0: I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Erin Jordan returns to the show. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm great. Nice to see you. It's nice to see you again. I don't know if I've ever expressed this to you, but your interview last time has proved to be one of the most popular in the history of the show. And so I think a lot of people who maybe heard that one would be excited to hear you again. And I know you have some projects that are new and some that we didn't talk about last time. So it's great to welcome you back. Thank you. That's welcome news. And I'm thrilled to be here. I always love the conversation. So we're here in Oregon. And... Oregon is a theme that you've returned to recently, but actually you made a 2001 Pinot Noir from the Goldschmidt Vineyard, even when you were based solely in California. Yep. My curiosity,
1: interest, love of Oregon has taken a while to mature,
0: but it's been there for a long time. You even made a Riesling from Oregon fruit early on in the Nyer's days, right? I did, yes. That was actually an outgrowth of
1: the Pinot Noir. I was looking at the Pinot Noir, and Neil and Diana Goldschmidt owned the vineyard, and a guy named Andy Humphreys farmed it for them. And so we were standing on the Goldschmidt's porch, and he was giving me the tour. So this is up on Wharton Hill School Road in Dundee, sort of the Rodeo Drive of uh, this part of the world. A lot of really well-thought-of vineyards in that neighborhood. And he was just pointing everything out to give me, here's the lay of the land. And he had pointed everything out except one vineyard that was immediately adjacent and slightly below the Goldschmidt vineyard. And I said, well, you kind of left one out. He's like, ah, it's Riesling. And I'm like, oh, I like Riesling. It looks old. He's like, oh, yeah, it's like 72, 73, own rooted. And I said, what happens to that Riesling? He said, oh, I, I farm it. I, I, we, I mean, always looking for a home. And so I went back, and Bruce Nyers had worked at least one, if not two, harvests in Germany. And I told him about it, and he said, get it. So that was what happened with the Riesling. (laughs) And, And I'm actually making Riesling now. I really like acid in wine, and it's something that I find frequently lacking in the new world. And we made Riesling last year from Mimi Castile's vineyard in Hopewell, so the southeastern part of the Eola Amity Hills, and the wine's got a finished ML Complete pH of 3.02. I'm like, yeah, acid-driven wines, like really acid-driven wine. So I think, and again, I always say I'm the outsider looking in in Oregon. I think that on some level there's really amazing things yet to be explored. I'm not debating the validity of Pinot Noir and Chardonnay in Oregon. There are plenty of people making really profound expressions of both. My question is, much like it is in California, but what about all the other grape varieties that no one's really delved into yet? And So that's the thing, that's sort of the the economics. Of Oregon, and and I see it on the Sonoma Coast in California, uh, probably more so, but the same thing, which is if you don't have a winery and a mechanism to sell wines, you as a grower aren't going to maybe plant too much Trousseau or Sauvignon or Nebbiolo or Syrah because who are you going to sell it to? And frankly, even if you could sell it, what are you going to get for it versus what you could get for Pinot Noir? And so as the winery scene in Oregon has sort of exploded, you know, land costs are substantively less than California. So I think you have this ability to maybe experiment a little more where in California, if you haven't won the lottery or been very successful doing something else, it's really hard to justify economically planting Chenin Blanc, Trousseau, you know, if you haven't owned the land for multiple generations, if you're buying land at current market rates, it just doesn't pencil out. And I think that's some of the really exciting parts of Oregon.
0: So to what degree do the prices differ for land? If I were thinking about Sonoma Coast, if I were thinking about St. Helena, you know, places that you're familiar with versus Oregon? There's a pretty big
1: delta between Napa and Sonoma still. Napa has gotten into The area slightly above the stratosphere. It's like the ridiculous sphere. I mean, I used to say real estate in the Napa Valley is an escalator, and it's only in one direction. It's going up, and now I've changed that to it's no longer an escalator. It's an elevator. I think really high-end vineyard land. I mean, I know a lot of real estate brokers, and it's hard to tease out the potential winery side and the home site. But, I mean, there have been some pieces that have traded upwards of a million dollars an acre, that's not the going rate. That would have to be something truly exceptional. Uh, Pritchard Hill, for example. But I think that it's real easy to say that Rutherford Bench, Cabernet Land, four hundred to 600,000 an acre. You know, that's a little bit out of my league. I aspire to that league. I actually, I don't even know that I aspire to that league. <laughs> um, I, I don't think you get in that league actually making wine for a living. You got to do that, something else. So that being said, if you transition to the Sonoma side, I would say high-end planted vineyards in choice Appalachians, whether it be Fort Ross Seaview, some of the more sought-after parts of the Sonoma Coast. So Sebastopol Hills, while not an AVA, certainly a, a recognized spot. Um, the middle reach of the Russian River. I mean, you're talking One seventy-five to two hundred thousand an acre. So in the Willamette Valley, I mean, there are addresses where you're going to pay a lot. Certainly, Wharton Hill School Road, the places where people have been growing grapes since the late '60s, and those sites have proven out—they're expensive. I I actually couldn't even hazard a guess because I haven't been looking. I would say they're probably certainly the equal of Sonoma County. That being said, the Willamette Valley is big. Way bigger than I think people realize. I mean, when I would say when you and I talk about the Willamette Valley, we're talking about a very particular part of the Willamette Valley that's really only a tiny part of it. And there are a lot of undeveloped parts of the valley as you move west. I'm not even talking about the southern reaches, because I mean, it goes down to Eugene. But I'm talking about in this neighborhood, the neighborhood of McMinnville. Amity, Salem, Dundee, Newburg, that sort of corridor. If you go a little bit west and you're headed out into the Van Duzer corridor, land is very inexpensive. Land is six, seven thousand dollars an acre. There's not a lot of vineyards out there, but I mean the same could be said of Fort Ross Sea View 20 years ago. There were three people growing grapes. That's not a lot of vineyards. <laughs> so I think there is an element to Oregon somewhat different than say Napa and Sonoma, because I think Napa and Sonoma have been relatively well explored and planted out. I mean, certainly there was a push towards the coast in Sonoma in the last 20 years, but I think you're going to see a push towards on some level, the coast here. You have interesting soils, you have the correct elevations and you know it's a it's a funny thing to think about and i would be curious to hear some of the other vintners that have been making wine here a lot longer than i have but my take on it from the outside is that you know in the 80s the 70s the 60s certainly people were able to identify sites that given the farming skill set of that era you could grow grapes Effectively and expect to get them ripe relatively frequently. I would say the farming game in Oregon is as elevated as any place I've ever seen in the world. You know, in the Russian River Valley, as a for instance, you still have a lot of old school plantings. They're 8 by 12, single wire, flop, grapes still get ripe, it's warm. Rarely do we have sort of the curtain call rain event where, whoa, okay, we got a problem. Here, I think people are much more studious about where they plant, and so, I mean, my thing every time I come up here is it feels like Europe. It's not all grapes. There's filberts, there's grass seed, there's broadacre farming, there's all sorts of stuff going on, and the grapes are kind of up in the hills. They're on well-drained soils, they're on good exposures, and you know, you read into that and you're like, oh, right. It's a little more marginal climatically. And, you know, I think in California, and I, I say this from 28 vintages of experience there, I mean, people get a little lackadaisical. We don't have a lot of bad vintages. It's not a big sine wave curve. It's not a roller coaster. And certainly in Burgundy, you got vintages that have real serious problems, whether it be hail or frost or rain events or... And you know, California is much more benign. Oregon is not. Oregon has much more to do with Burgundy, I mean, i.e. continental climate, yes, we're two and a half hours from the water. But the influence of the ocean in the western part of Sonoma County is very immediate. It's right there. It's 15 minutes away. You see the fog bank rolling over the hill. Here it comes. Boom. It's on you. I mean, I see it in the sense of, so I live out in the Russian River Valley. Average summertime peak temperature at my house is somewhere between 1.30 and 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And then the fog comes in and it gets cold. Here, and I would defer to others, but in my few vintages here, peak day type temperature, depending on where you are and your exposure, could be as late as 6 o'clock in the afternoon. And the sun stays up a lot longer. So it's a more condensed growing season. I think you texturally get different wines. It's hotter here in the summer than it is in the coastal parts of California. I would go back to 2015, my recollection is there were 30-ish, 31, 32 days, over 100 degrees in the Willamette Valley during that growing season. There were none in the Russian River Valley. The Russian River Valley actually, I think, typically gets riper before Oregon. So that's the part where by saying it gets hot, I'm not saying it's a hotter climate. It's a more condensed climate, much like Burgundy. It snows here in the winter. It's super cold. Uh, I mean, I grew up in the Northeast, so it's not super cold, but it's cold. I mean, if you live in California and you come up here, you're like, whoa, it's cold. It's mm, There's no avocado trees. I don't see any palms. Uh, so that element of, I mean, bud break is three to five weeks later here. But then you have a hot summer, so you get thicker grape skins. It's still, I think, in a normal year, Oregon is later. California. It never catches up. I don't think I would say it's five weeks later. There is some catch up that goes on during the hotter months, but texturally the wines are different. And that's, I mean, A, you got different soils, but B, it's a very different climate. And there are all these subtleties that I didn't think about until I was hanging out up here. And I'm like, man, it's hot late and it's light late. So you know where you plant, you think about that. I mean, a southwest-facing slope here is a different beast than a southeast-facing slope because it stays light so late, whereas southwest in California, I mean, you might be in the fog. You're not really taking that much advantage. South or southeast might be a more favorable exposure. So there's so many great wines that have already been made in the Willamette Valley, and I think the additions to that list keep growing and every year and I see lots of segments I mean you had the founders that founding group of wineries and I mean I think they picked some of the most extraordinary sites always related to golf course design in the sense of you know back in the original days of building golf courses they had mules and boards they didn't push a lot of dirt around these golf course architects had to really pay attention to the land and You know, now you can come in with a D8 and a motor grader and you can, whatever you can invent, you can create with a golf course. And on some level, viticulture gets to that point where the technology that can be brought to bear today is very different than the technology that was brought to bear in the 60s. And the fact that the site selection that occurred in the sort of Oregon founding fathers regime, it's super impressive. There were some very smart people cruising around here. As you begin to apply more technology, and I think technology, just like dense spacing, vertical trellising, devigorating rootstocks. I mean, you think about the original plantings, they were very large. They were sort of 8 by 12 plantings, own-rooted, no irrigation. I know a lot of people that still grow own-rooted vines. The spacing regime has gotten tighter. The trellising has become more vertical. So you've created a more efficient photosynthetic machine, which allows you to plant different areas. And I mean, I see that in the Napa Valley where there are correlations. There's been sort of, there was a pendulum swing in the Napa Valley. And you hear a lot of people saying, I drank this 68, you know, name the Napa Cabernet, ayacamas and it was 12 and a half percent alcohol and it wasn't vegetal. And I'm like, right, because the vines were super inefficient. They actually achieved physiological ripeness at 12.5% potential alcohol. Today, in a vineyard that's perfectly oriented to 17 degrees off of magnetic north and vertically trellised and deficit irrigated at 12.5% potential alcohol, it tastes like green beans and you know it's super unpleasant, not physiologically ripe. And I think that has gone on in Oregon. And so in Napa, what you saw was bigger and bigger wines because people were like, the grapes don't taste good at 12 and a half. I need to get rid of the bell beans. The pyrazines need to burn off. And all of a sudden you're making these behemoth wines. And, you know, the pendulum has begun to swing back and people were like, well, maybe we need to split the canopy, a little less efficient. I think everybody's always looking backwards and forward simultaneously and saying what worked and what didn't work. And and so for me, when I look at Oregon, you know, you were fortunate enough to try an 85 IRI, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a wine that probably is a wine of less viticultural technology, and yet it can be really special and beautiful. And, that same site. I'm not sure where that wine came from, but if you were to redevelop it in the modern era and planted a three by five spacing and vertically trellised, you'd probably make a much heftier wine. And I see a lot of hefty wines in Oregon. Me too. Yeah, like 14.5% alcohol bruisers. And some of that is viticultural. And it's not that people have changed their thought process. They're just looking for physiological maturity. And when you set up a vineyard like that, it frequently occurs later. I think if you look at that as a negative, which you know, some people do, some people don't, the benefit of it is that I think there's a lot less really bad vintages in Oregon. Much like California, there's not a lot of really bad vintages. I think in years that maybe in the 70s or 80s would have been really difficult years, they're no longer that difficult. I mean, you still have to be on your A game but at least you're not being handed a slate of rotting fruit because viticulturally, that's not really going to happen that much anymore. People are a little more focused. So you may have to dodge rainstorms, 2017. I mean, it started raining in the, I can't remember the exact day, 20th of September, and it rained on and off throughout harvest. I had sites that logged five and a half, six inches of rain, you know, from start to finish in harvest. The wines are really good. I actually find them to be right up my alley personally. And I sort of look at wines like that and say, so if this is the worst vintage that you're going to see, like it rains, you know, six inches during harvest. Wow. And just, you know, that element of a good rain can refresh a vineyard. So I think that when you take That more modern approach to viticulture, what happens in the Willamette Valley is it expands this entire westward door. And that becomes really interesting to me. And it also allows for other grape varieties to enter the fray where, you know, we might be sitting on one of the greatest sites ever for Manzoni Bianco. We just don't know it because nobody's planted it. It's like the Napa Valley. I mean, you kind of got the Cabernet train. And in the Willamette Valley, you got the Pinot train. And I mean, I live on a road in the Russian River Valley that when I first moved there was three quarters old vine Zinfandel. And every time a property changes hands, the Zinfandel, it's torn out and the people plant Pinot Noir. I, it happened literally just the other day. It was tragic. This vineyard, I, I mean, it didn't get pruned. And I'm like, no, I knew the property had been for sale. And I thought, you gotta be kidding me. Historic heritage, amazing well-farm vineyard. Gone. Scrubbed off. I'm sure it'll be Pinot Noir. They're working on layout. But, you know, that being said, I think, when I think about Oregon, the element of where does Chardonnay do better than Pinot Noir? I mean, that goes on frequently in the Sonoma Coast, and there is that economic element, although I think here it's it's not as distinct. and. Frankly, here, it may actually be the reverse, which is Chardonnay is more expensive than Pinot Noir, because there's so little of it. And I love to joke with David Hirsch about, you know, maybe your grandkids will laugh at the fact that you grew Pinot Noir. And I get the, what what are you talking about? I'm like, well, what if it's a better Chardonnay site? I mean, he doesn't have a lot of Chardonnay, but the Chardonnay he's got is extraordinary. And I'm not saying the Pinot Noir is not extraordinary, but Koch isn't growing Pinot Noir in Corton Charlemagne. And it would probably be really good Pinot Noir if he did. But we could all argue that the Chardonnay might be better. But it's an economic thing. I guarantee you if Pinot Noir in Corton Charlemagne was worth $1,600 a bottle and Chardonnay was worth 300 I bet you they'd be growing a whole lot more Pinot Noir. So that's the economic driver. And you know, I think in Oregon, certainly in my world of tasting, there's really good Chardonnay here. And again, this comes from the more acid, freaky profile. So, I mean, I would say there's been obviously a lot of really talented people working here for a really long time, but there is always new energy, and I think that as that new energy Pushes things around, pushes them, you know. So you've got established vineyards. Everybody's, you know, there's not a lot of plantable land in the Dundee Hills right now. I mean, there is a little bit, but it's very expensive. And so a lot of times newcomers are people that maybe aren't as well funded. And so they are out on the periphery. And I mean, I would put myself in that group. I'm working on a piece of property that's, I don't want to say it's further out than anybody else. There's, I've actually definitely got some neighbors that are as westerly as I am, but. It's definitely off the beaten track. That's the property near Dallas? Yes. I don't think that the TTB has put it forth yet, but it's been up for its commentary period, and it, it would be called the Van Duzer Corridor. That will be the newest AVA once it kind of emerges from the TTB, which is this sort of nebulous process. But they've accepted the application, they've published it for comment, and that usually, if nobody says, you know, I can't have this, you know, I've always wanted to be part of the Van Duzer Corridor and I'm over here and I'm outside the line. I mean, there's a couple ways you can kind of derail one of those things, but I don't think that's happened. So I think it will be the next AVA, but yeah, so west of the Southern tip of the Eola Amity AVA, and you sort of head out into this flatter kind of broadacre farming scene. And then all of a sudden it starts to rise up again in these undulating hills and you get up into the, what I kind of consider as the go zone of altitude. It's interesting here because nobody thinks about elevation in California. I mean, there's zero talk of it. And here it's kind of the really important thing. I mean, obviously soil type and exposure, but elevation is hugely important as well. And Elevation and soil type kind of go hand in glove. My history of the geology of Oregon is probably relatively low on the sophistication list, but there was an event called the Missoula Floods, and there's a lot of sedimentary soil. I mean, super for farming. Just look around the Willamette Valley. There's a lot of serious farming going on here. It's not really where you want to be growing grapes, pretty heavy soil. I mean, the grapes are very excited, but you get into a lot of issues with lateness of ripening and mildew and fungal issues that just when you get up in the hills on the better drain soil. So there is that element. And when I first came up here in the early 2000s, I didn't hear a lot of conversation about that, but I was also dealing with a vineyard that was in arguably the true sweet spot. I just didn't realize that and as i have purchased more grapes and gotten out and about more i'm like oh right no this is no joke (laughs) you know 300 to 550 feet like that's the go zone that's kind of where you want to be the snapshot of it is if you go too low the soils get heavy if you go too high it gets too cold the temperature decreases with altitude and so you have a later onset of bud break And the physical daytime temperatures are
0: lower and it gets harder and harder to ripen fruit the higher you go. So the Van Duzer Corridor, if I understand correctly, brings a lot of cold air off the Pacific Ocean through there. And it's an area where things tend to ripen later as a result. And so for me, very superficially, not knowing either region super well, that reminds me a little bit of an area you're familiar with, which is the Sonoma Coast. Yes. And... It did me as well, and I kind of was looking
1: around and said, huh, this area looks promising. The fascinating thing, and this was after acquisition of the property, I mean, I, I kind of went out there and kicked the dirt a little bit, and I'm like, oh, this looks actually shockingly like Goldridge Loam. So there's a soil type out there called bell pine, which is a different parent material, but it's more or less sandy clay loam which is what Goldridge Loam is. And you know Goldridge Loam arcs across the series, as does Bellpine, and there's several derivatives of it, but it's a sandy clay loam. So I thought, oh, I'm pretty sure that we can grow grapes here. And the conversation about ripeness is every bit as germane here as it is in California. Because there are plenty of people in Oregon that make 14.5%, 15% alcohol Pinot Noir. And I would say that's a testament to how good the farming here is because there was not a lot of people making 145 half and 15% alcohol Pinot Noir in the 70s. So that's farming. And I hearken back to a conversation I had years ago. I was at Walt and Joan Flowers' house for dinner. And Walt said, well, what are you going to plant on that piece of ground? And I said, Syrah. And he looked at me and said, you can't get Syrah ripe. And I said, well, the good news is ripeness is a state of mind. And in my mind, I can get it right. And I had some friends over for dinner this spring. And one of my friends brought a bottle of wine that I didn't know existed, which was Christum Syrah. It was awesome. And I've, in my mind, and said, I want to plant some Syrah up here. I don't think a lot of people are growing Syrah in the Willamette Valley. I, in fact, I know there's Syrah planted in Southern Oregon. And Steve Derner brought a bottle of Syrah. Like, dude, this wine is incredible. He's like, yeah, we don't make it every year. And I, you know, it's that very modest. I mean, Steve's one of my winemaking heroes and one of the guys that made one of those wines where I went, oh, oh, Pinot Noir. Oh, yeah, I need to do this. this uh, I don't know this guy, but I need to find him. Well, he also likes the whole cluster and you like the whole cluster. Yeah, for sure. And it's funny that I now find myself with Christum as my nearest, I think, neighbor, Bethel Heights and Christum. We're kind of in between the two of them. So I'm definitely going to bend Steve's ear a little bit more about his Syrah planting and look at it and walk it and think about it and how it relates to mine. And it's that element of, well, what is ripe? And that's the element of being up here, being Oregon, that I'm very curious about. You know, I I made Gruner Veltliner last year. I had two picks. One was at 18 Bricks and the other was at 20 bricks. I didn't know, I mean, I sort of did the backwards math and said, you know, an efficient white ferment converts it 0.62, you know, 18 is an 11% potential alcohol wine. I drink a lot of Gruners that are 11% that I really like, you know, screw cap, liter bottle, maybe not the most serious wine in the world, but still tasty. And so, I don't know, let's try it. We'll divide it, the block in half, let's pick half there and half it a little bit riper. and. They both have their charms. Uh, They smell like Gruner. I'm like, oh, cool. So, I mean, it's a journey of discovery. And again, I come back to the ripeness thing. And I'm like, ripeness, people get very sort of didactic. And I don't buy into that. I think you can, especially in Oregon, there are so many sites that I think you can achieve physiological ripeness at lower sugar levels, which is kind of my whole windmill jousting thing. I mean, that's what I with certain varieties, appreciate. You know, that being said, I was the winemaker at Turley for 20 years and made a lot of wines that pissed off a lot of people. <laughs> so I'm unapologetic about that. I love those wines. You know, don't be angry because you like Chablis and this wine affronts you because it's 155 or 16% alcohol. Like, do you drink Chateau Neuf de Pop? Because those wines are that big in a good year. Alcohol isn't by itself bad. I can't think of a lot of really great Chateauneufs that I've had that were 12.5% alcohol. The Grenache just doesn't, that's not its game. And Zinfandel's kind of the same way.
0: But I think something that you found over a longer career, but more recently in that career, is that there seems to be more avenues for selling the lower alcohol wines and more acceptance in the market now than there was in the 90s, right? Oh, big time.
1: I think there were a lot of people that may have, you know, even if you're at home drinking... Chocolino or you know, some let's just say low alcohol acid-driven wine, you know, if you've got a commercial bone, you're like, yeah, I can't do that here. Ain't nobody buying this. Make a barrel, we can drink it at home. But when you think about wine criticism, wine commentary, 25 years ago, there weren't that many people doing it. And they wielded phenomenal power. And I think today you have a much more, I mean, obviously the internet, people's ability to access information, totally different. And there's so many more voices and consequently so many more advocates for different styles. And, you know, there's still big wines out there. There's still super oaky California Chardonnay that's a little bit sweet and people drink it like it was Kool-Aid. But I think there's also an avenue for much more, different wines. I mean wines that aren't dominated by oak, that are way lower in alcohol. And I come back to the it's not good or bad, it's just different. And I have a neighboring winery to my winery in St. Helena that makes that style of wine. Very oak driven, riper, probably some residual sugar, not threshold, but you know, right up to it type wines and They make 150,000 cases of Chardonnay, and there are people that drink that wine that have wine on their table who have kids growing up where wine is a part of a meal. I laud that. I love that. That helps my business. It helps all of us. I make kind of not that mainstream wines. I have a much smaller customer base And so when I see a big winery that makes wines that are maybe broader appeal out there, I'm thrilled. It might not be the wine that I choose to drink. It's fine. I don't, you know, I drink a really small spectrum of wines in the grand scheme of things. But it's important to, I think, acknowledge the role of some of those brands in the greater benefit to tiny people like me doing weirdo stuff. I'm not going to make a lot of. 250-day Skin Contact Amphora Fermented Chardonnay. I'm smart enough to know that that market is relatively limited, but I'm still curious about it and I'm going to do it. I'm just not going to do it in a size that's going to bankrupt me. You know, and on some level, Oregon is arriving at the point where there are starting to be those brands. You see some more mass market wines. Oh, yeah, which is really important. It's not a, oh, oh, no, here comes the big, bad, evil empire. It's, no, no, this is good stuff. This is good for everybody here. It's just there isn't that much consciousness. And so having those driver brands in Oregon is huge. And there's a lot of money flowing into this valley and a lot of expertise and a lot of larger wineries that might be based outside of Oregon seeing the potential and buying land and wineries and I don't get worried by stuff like that and in terms of the winery how do you like to work my thing with a barrel room is it should be relatively rapidly uncomfortable in a t-shirt
0: if you're not that uncomfortable relatively quickly it's too warm well that's a classic kind of Burgundy attitude, right? I mean, that's how Dominique Lafon likes to work. It's super cold. Oh, yeah. Well, there's a lot of biology that goes on when it gets above 60,
1: 62 degrees. Unwanted biology. You can get a cellar really cold here. It's just the summertime that can be, you know, you you got to pay attention. I love long, prolonged ferments. I mean, I'm personally unworried by a wine that in May hasn't gone through malolactic fermentation. I kind of love for them to go into a hibernation state by about November and not be done with alcoholic or malolactic and then reemerge in the spring and finish. My favorite wines are the wines that take the longest to go through ML. I think, especially in California, certainly to some degree in Oregon, because it is pretty warm here in the summer, you got to be. Careful and conscious, because, well, let me step back and say it depends on your ultimate goal. If your goal is to bottle biologically stable wines without filtration or other intervention, a cold cellar is really important. If you're a little looser on that front,
0: then maybe you're not as focused on it. Well, allows you to do more time in barrel with lees, right? That's the big deal, right? Absolutely, and you've got all the gas, the CO2 produced by fermentation, which is
1: blanketing the wine and keeping it in a non-SO2 state. I mean, I don't add a lot of SO2. I typically don't add them on the crush pad. We don't add them until the wines are done with malolactic fermentation. So, I mean, if they don't finish until June, those grapes have seen no SO2 for 10 months, which I tend to like those wines a little better. I mean, wines that finish ML and need be SO2. Again, I mean, you don't need to do it if you got a 55-degree cellar. You can just ride them along, too. So there's a lot of benefits to it. I mean, you can always warm it up, right? I've just never had problematic... I, I know people that have, oh, I can't get this wine to go through ML. And there were a couple wines at Turley that historically would be challenging. I mean, I can specifically... Like the Uberoth Vineyard, which is... I don't know that pure limestone is the right word to describe it, but I mean, the soil pH at the top of that vineyard somewhere between 8.5 and, and 9. It's about as close to pure limestone as you can get. And, I mean, the wines would have post-ML pHs of 3.15 with a 15.5 alcohol. Really hard to get. That's like the double whammy of malolactic is a really low pH and a really high alcohol. Hard to get to go through. There was a wine that we made years ago from a vineyard in the Russian River Valley, another really cold site, and it took two years to go through M.L., and rather than get freaked out, we were just like, all right, well, we'll just let it ride. It's ticking down, and second summer, it finally finished. Cool.
0: In a cold cellar, what's your approach to racking? And the reason I ask is when I've been in the Piemonte in different seasons, I've realized different things about the Piemonte. And when I've been in there in the winter, no one racks. And if they do rack, it's highly unusual. Like if a wine doesn't taste super reductive, you're raising questions. You're like, did you rack this? <laughs> what's going on? <laughs> and the reason that they don't rack is when it's really cold in the cellar, the wines take on more oxygen when you rack them and they mm-hmm. prematurely oxidize sooner. And so people avoid it. And so I'm just curious for other grape varieties in other places, what's your experience working in a cold cellar with racking?
1: When you say that, it's funny because it makes me think of something else, and I'll come back to the answer to it, but it's that folk wisdom that has total scientific basis, but, you know, 50 years ago, nobody would have explained it that way. You just don't rack in the winter. Like, what are you doing? And, I mean, when I worked in Kornos, it was exactly that. I remember one day, it was raining, and... I was coming down the hill and I passed this older gentleman who farmed a piece next to the piece that Jean-Luc Colombo had. And he said, what are you doing? And I said, oh, I'm going to rack some wines. He said, what are you, oh, what, what are you talking about? It's raining. Why would you ever rack a wine when it's raining? Only rack with the north wind. And I'm like, what? The north wind, what? Weirdo. And, you know, subsequently somebody with a little more perspective said, so here's the deal. A north wind in the northern Rhône is high pressure over the Baltic. It's the Mistral. The north wind is when the leaves are most compressed, and it's the best time to rack. A rain event is a low-pressure system. The leaves come up, and I'm like, oh, it's exactly that. It's folk wisdom that has total scientific basis. It's just the old-timers were connected to Mother Nature in a way that we aren't. And we sort of demand, why? What's the why? You know, and I mean, I'm a very curious person, so that's my general nature. And so, when you just said that, I'm like, "Oh, right, that's brilliant. Of course, that's exactly why it is. I wouldn't have been able to articulate that." But you have tasted enough there, and it's that element of, "Well, this wine doesn't taste right for this time of year. What are you doing? What happened? Why'd you rack it?" (laughs) So, my thing in general, I mean, my own wines, like we we don't rack them. Right. We rack them for bottling and. Reductiveness doesn't bother me. I actually like it. So when I worked for and with Bruce Nyers, we would have these, these um periodic episodes. Bruce tasted the wine constantly out of barrel because he, as a salesperson, was, you know, there was always a new distributor coming through and they were tasting it. And you know, wines in barrel are these kind of amorphous things. They move around and I'd get a memo like, so-and-so Chardonnay tastes horrible, we need to rack it. I'm like, yeah, but it's not going into bottle tomorrow, so I disagree. We don't need to rack it. If we were bottling tomorrow and it tasted like that, I would be concerned, but we're not. I don't need to taste it with anybody. You know, it is what it is. My goal isn't to make wine that tastes good in March in, let's say, March of the year after we picked it. I don't care what it, I mean, I care what it tastes like and I want to say that, but I mean, there's a spectrum of flavors that I'm not upset by. You know, fast forward another year, I want it to taste good because you're selling it. So, that's the thing for me. I, I have friends that are more learned professionals in terms of masters in chemistry, PhD in viticulture, things like that, that will frequently get upset by a wine and a reductive. Oh, this wine needs to be racked right away. And I come back to my point, which is, no, it doesn't. I mean, there are wines that do need to be racked. Don't get me wrong. Occasionally, you get into aromatic zones. And I'm like, okay, this is enough. <laughs> Air needs to be in- introduced here. But in general, my experience is with really well-farmed, well-thought-through viticultural programs, there's not a lot of need for racking early on. And I just don't. I always think of my winemaking as it's like the ostrich. If something bad is happening, just put your head in the ground. Wine kind of makes itself. I mean, again, there are things that can happen that you, know, you don't want to happen. But in a general sense, wine makes itself. If you take grapes and put them in a bucket, wine happens. I mean, vinegar happens soon thereafter. If if winemakers don't kind of inject themselves. But if you
0: take the ingredients of beer and put them in a bucket, nothing happens. So you must have seen, or you must have tasted wines that were reductive in Cornas. Oh
1: yeah. Oh, totally.
0: I had a lot of sort of fundamental
1: thought process shifts while I was there. So when I worked in California, first stint, so 90 to 92, The mantra generally was, if a wine smelled reductive, you racked it. didn't matter when, you just did it. And that was the thing of being in France, that it was more of an epiphany. And I would say part of that was the time I was in California. I think wineries were more dominated by winemakers that had professional training. I mean, for lack of a better word, I don't. We've talked about that before. I got a degree in art history. I'm pretty loose on the chemistry side. I mean, I know enough to worm my way through, but I mean, if you need a complex explanation of a chemical procedure, like I, I can't do it. I know people that can. And so, being in Cornas, where, yeah, wine's reductive. I mean, of course it is. It's winter. We haven't racked it. Are you not worried? It's not going to blow up. Like, that was like the thing in California. Oh, you're going to ruin the wine. And, you know, to watch people that are very clearly successful and have been successful for a long time, just kind of poo-poo it and go, nah, what are you talking about? Like, why would you ever rack this? It smells totally appropriate for the stage it's at. I mean, that's an eye-opening thing. I mean, I think of times where early vintage Nyers wines, where we were doing native yeast ferments and there were other winemakers, we were at a custom crush winery and people were getting mad at me. Like, really upset. You can't do that. You're going to ruin my wine. I mean, think about that today. I mean, nobody would bat an eyelash. I mean, like, visceral anger. Like, dude, I'm not making your wine. You're doing your own thing. You're adding your yeast. You're adding your sulfur. You're making your enzyme additions. You're doing all of that. Good on you. Just, like, don't open the yeast packet near my stuff. And so that that wasn't that long ago. (laughs) And so, I mean, you think about how far California has morphed, and I would say Oregon's the same way. It's an industry thing. I think there's a lot more people making wine today that have no degree, no technical training in winemaking, and are willing to experiment in ways. I mean, maybe also because they own the winery. That's been another comment leveled at me. Well, like you would never do that if you worked for someone else and it was their money, you'd just get fired. And I'm like, well, actually, I did it for 20 years working for someone else, but I, I'm not. I don't want to belabor that point. Um, you know, I think there's just different levels of volume, and I've been doing this long enough to say that there are different kinds of wine. I mean, I have I know people that are PhD chemists that geek out on. Making the wine taste the same every year. Right. Like that to me is the polar opposite of what I'm looking for, but they truly, that's their goal. And, you know, if you're a certain size winery and do you really want to be talking about vintage change with the big chain restaurant thing that you're, it's a 25,000 case account for you every year. Like, you don't want to talk about vintage variation. You just want to move into the next vintage. So there's so many spots in the wine industry you can fit in or you can, you know, ferment, Pinot Gris in a clay amphora in your garage. And both are valid. Both of those individuals derive total pleasure from what they're doing. And I'm like, again, I come back to that point of like, I might not want to drink that one wine and I might want to drink the other wine, but
0: it doesn't invalidate either one. From my perspective, what I've seen happen is there was a wine crowd and they drank wines. And now there's wine crowds and they drink different wines from each other. It's like music. you know, some people listen to Rihanna, some people listen to folk music, some people listen to jazz. Well, I couldn't agree more. That's a great analogy, too. I'm going
1: to steal that. It's exactly that. And it was kind of like a one-beat track for a while, and that's my point of, there's so many variations, and I think the market dictates on some level. If you're smart and astute, you can very quickly derive a good idea of if you want to make 150,000 cases, 200,000 cases of wine, there's a certain style that you need to kind of comport with. If that's not your goal, then you can kind of do whatever. And you'll probably find a group of people that are curious about what you're doing.
0: So back to that reduction point, I wonder if you could just kind of walk me through it a little bit. You've worked extensively with Pinot Noir, with Syrah, with Zinfandel, and with Chardonnay. And if I were to kind of think about each of those grape varieties and the topic of reduction, how are they different or the same? So, I mean, I think they arc similarly across
1: wines. I think there are reductive flavors that are more appealing to consumers in, let's say, Chardonnay. I mean, People get excited about reductive Chardonnay, like really excited, the kind of matchsticky, hazelnutty, struggling ferment reductive wine. I mean, I do. I mean, there's a point at which it's over the top, but you're riding that edge of reduction. And it's so subjective because there are people who are like, oh, this wine's undrinkable. I'm like, oh, no, it's not. What are you talking about? Give it five minutes, man. Like, aeratively decant it. It'll be phenomenal. It'll blow your doors off. So... I think Syrahs like that too. I think Pinot can be, although I think people expect more immediacy somehow with Pinot. I mean, I don't mind reduction in Pinot Noir. It's nice to know about it, to say, oh, this wine needs to be aeratively decanted. Because otherwise, it's just kind of dumb. You know, doesn't have much to say. It's just sort of sitting there. I think about, so the first vintage that I got grapes from uh, the Pays was 2006 the fruit was amazing it was the best looking fruit that came into the winery rakis beautifully lignified and so we did a really elevated percentage of whole cluster the wine was absolutely magical in barrel and i could sense the reduction but it it was never that apparent and we bottled the wine and it was literally I mean, I, it got to the point where Andy and Nick said, what'd you do with the wine? Did you bottle it, or did you just blend it away? And I'm like, no, no, I bottled it, because we released the 7, the 07, before the 06. And I'm like, it's just not ready. I can't, I don't want this to be the opening salvo. You know, You only have that first chance to m- make a good impression, and I didn't want people to try that wine and be like, I don't get this. And I think there is an immediacy about the drinking public on a a larger scale I mean there are certainly those of us amongst the drinking public who kind of get into reduction but I just sat on that wine for like three years and that was one of those aha moments of oh higher stem content wines need more time for whatever combination of reasons they are more reductive and so Zinfandel Zinfandel's kind of a, I always say Zinfandel is like the Grenache of the new world. You got to be careful with Zinfandel. And historically in California, and this would go equally for Syrah, there was that element of oh, it's reductive, you got to rack it. And you know, splash it around and beat the crap out of it while you're at it. Give it a kick in the pants and stand on top of the fermenter PS, by the way, with a hose and like blast it. And so we had wines at Turley that never were racked. And that was kind of a constant topic of thought process, conversation, et cetera, is Zinfandel has historically been treated like Cabernet. And I can walk you through the thought process of, well, it's this big, powerful alcoholic can be tannic, blah, 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 blah. So you just need to beat it up and aerate it. I'm like, eh, I don't know. I mean, Grenache is a really tannic variety too. In fact, more so than Zinfandel, but it's actually really delicate. And you have to be super careful with it because it oxidizes and becomes unpleasant. And then you get into these weird synergies that I find flavor-wise not very good. And so, again, this maybe goes back to my predilection for reduction in wines or wines that have been allowed to live in a reductive state for a long period of time. It also goes to how they're handled. Not a lot of racking means more lees, means more CO2, means less SO2 rounder, more appealing wines. I mean, that's kind of my general take on it. Reduction, I should say, and the need to rack, it's like pornography. Like, I know when I need to rack a wine, there's no debate. And my version of that is very different than a lot of other people's.
0: So how much do you see reduction as a flavor and a smell, and how much do you see it as a texture? Hmm, that's a great question. It's both. I mean, aromatically, I mean, you
1: pick it up when you smell it. But when you taste a wine, there's a textural component to it that I find super appealing. I mean, again, it's like to a point, and it can go overboard, and it, it can be unappealing. And so I appreciate other human beings who are like, oh, this wine's, it's just over the t- I can't, I can't do it. It's too much. Yeah. I mean, everyone's got their tolerance point. You know, a bikini was too much for a lot of people in the 20s. And now, like...
0: (laughs) What about the relationship between reduction and wood in terms of the flavor? I have a hard time sometimes
1: teasing out which is which. I can mistake frequently a wine that's been in a lot of new wood with reduction. What I would say is that new wood... And maybe it's a synergy of new wood and reduction. I, I tend to think it kind of is because I don't, I don't see that so much in wines that aren't. So I kind of have a knee-jerk reaction of, ooh, that needs to be racked. I don't get that a lot in wines that are in older barrels for whatever reason. And I mean, I think it's the combination of char and the way it interacts with the reductive aromatics that isn't appealing to me it accentuates the wood smell. And for me, wood is not something that I want to smell. I mean, as a, as a minor background note, great. I mean, I always look at it and think of a symphony and if you have one person with a giant gong just going, gong, 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 you're like, oh dude, can you just settle down in the back row there? Just stop. That's wood. I mean, it's like salt and food. It's just like some is great. I don't want to notice it. I don't want to be like, wow, did you notice the salt in that dish? I'm like That's bad. It's the same way
0: with wood for me. I don't want to drink wine where the first thing I think about is wood. So you made a lot of wine in the 90s, and I drank a fair amount of wine in the 90s, but I didn't make wine. And what I see now, and maybe I'm wrong, but at least in the New York market, I see a lot more wines that are reductive, and I see a fashion for it. And so... I get what you're saying. A lot of wood is annoying. But I remember in the 90s, it seemed like they applied a lot more wood and it seemed like there was less reduction in the wines. And as we've moved away from applying a lot more wood, it seems like there's more reduction in some wines. And I know there's other issues involved. That may very well be. I, I wonder if that whole
1: conversation we just had about media influence and Different voices isn't a part of that because in the 90s it was super important to have a lot of new wood and not have reduction, so the wines got racked a lot. And you know, now you have people championing different styles of winemaking. And so, is it merely a new wood thing, or is it just stylistically that people feel able to express a wine that way, not rack it for a long time? And you know, again, I I think new wood and reduction occupy a similar space, which is I don't mind either one. I just don't want it to be excessive. And I think that we as an industry, because of our youth, tend to have these pendulum swings where everybody runs over to this side, no, oh, we're going to do that. And then everybody says, well, screw that. We're going to run back over here. And you know, now there's so many voices. I think we're less like that, but we're still like that a little bit. I mean, there are enough... Taste maker human beings out there that if those people begin to espouse something, there's kind of a cattle call of people that are like, well, I can do that.
0: One thing where there does seem to be a divide about reduction is the difference between some of the wines that I see coming out of Oregon and some of the wines I see coming out of other places because in Oregon, I rarely find the wines reductive. Mm -hmm. Maybe for a Chardonnay sometimes, but when I think of the classic Oregon Pinots, a Shea Pinot. Yep. It's never reductive. My thing is, and I think about it with Chardonnay, I think of
1: reduction in large part coming from nutrient deficient must. And depending on where you're buying grapes, I'll use the California example to start with. Yeah, you know, There's a lot of vineyards where people fertigate heavily and you arrive with nitrogen levels in the must that there will never be reduction, like it ain't happening. There's way too much food for the yeast. They will never struggle. And I always used to get excited at Niers when we would find a site that might have, you know, there's all sorts of measurements, YAN, which is yeast available nitrogen. And you get into these numbers where you can look at the analysis of juice and say that wine is gonna be reductive. Yes, you know, it's not gonna be ridiculous, but it's going to have some because those yeasts are going to struggle a little bit. So I take that experience and I come to Oregon and I don't disagree with you. There's a, a newness to the soil here. There's a lot of vitality. You don't see a lot of super deficient must here. And I think it's, it's the soil type and the age of the soil and the length of time that vine crops have been grown on it. Outsider looking in, I'm sure there's a lot of people that have divergent opinions, and I'm sure there are sites that prove that entire thesis wrong, but in a general overarching sense, that's kind of my take on it. Again, I would use the experience of the Hain Vineyard Zinfandel. In the early 70s, the guy that was farming Hain, somebody had asked him to plant another vineyard, and so he took budwood from Hain and he took it up onto Hal Mountain, and he planted a vineyard that's now called the Black Sears Vineyard. So identical budwood, you would swear on a stack of Bibles that it was a different grape variety. I mean, the berries at Hain are relatively small. The berries at Black Sears are gigantic. It's a site thing. That site at Hain's been cultivated for a long time. It's very different soil. It's alluvium. It's one of those, I call them the sweet spot sites where in the 1800s when you didn't have irrigation and you didn't have fungicides. There were very few places you grew grapes and they were real consistent, which was they had enough moisture holding capacity for a vine to be dry farmed, but they had enough soil drainage for it not to rot. I mean, when you see an old Zinfandel vineyard, you're like, that's the spot. I can tell you why that's still there. It has those two properties. And, you know, you go into the seventies and you can irrigate and you can do a lot of things. So all of a sudden you're planting sites that throw off completely what you thought was cluster morphology. That was a genetic thing about that budwood. It actually has nothing to do with the budwood. It was site-driven. and So I think that goes on in Oregon. I see
0: that. One of the themes that really came up in the last interview that we did together, and you sort of touched on it there, was there are sites for grapes and kinds of wines that you want to make, and it's about finding them. So what's your intuition with Oregon at this point for what can work up here and where? I have growers that I buy grapes from that, Sort of nervously
1: say, "So, what are you what are you doing on that piece of property?" I'm like, "Don't worry, like I love you. You have an extraordinary Pinot Noir and Chardonnay site. I'm thrilled. I don't want to go anywhere. You farm immaculately. I really like what you do. I'm doing something else out here. <laughs> I'll probably plant a little bit of Pinot and Chardonnay. I actually have I have an immediate neighbor who has a third leaf Pinot vineyard that is farmed by someone who's helping me. Um, I'm going to digress momentarily, which is." In California, if you want to farm biodynamically, you better read Steiner and figure it out because there's not a lot of help. A couple consultants in Oregon. Oh, I mean, you want to farm biodynamically? There's 10 vineyard management companies that'll do it for you. When I say the Oregon farming game is like on it, it is on it. It's extraordinary up here. So the woman that oversees a lot of the farming for Seven Springs Vineyard, Jessica Cortell, who I think the world of, I mean, I buy fruit from both Pinot and Chardonnay from Seven Springs. And, you know, it's one of those, every time you go in, you're just like, wow, this is so thoughtfully farmed. And I mean, it's not just her, Sashi's involved and, but she is helping me with my piece of property. And she said, by the way, you got a fence line neighbor who I've been working with for the last three years. So I'll have a better idea of how Pinot Noir does in the neighborhood this fall, because I'm buying the fruit from that vineyard. And so on some levels, I don't feel the need to rush out and plant Pinot Noir. I, I got plenty. I'm way more interested in how does Chenin Blanc do? How does Savignon do? How does Trousseau, Pulsard, Syrah, Riesling do? And I can do that. And again, I mean, I make a lot of Chardonnay and Pinot Noir, but I have other interests in the wine world. I have a whole other brand where I make Zinfandel and Petit Syrah day and I envision probably a third brand. I worked at Phelps and Phelps made everything. And I, there was some marketing gene in me that was like, I mean, the wines were all really good, but what I would see would be people coming to the winery who knew their own wines and were startled that we made Cabernet. like, how can you be startled? Joseph Phelps is one of the founding, like seminal figures in Cabernet in the Napa Valley. Come on, man, really? And the reality is people compartmentalize things. You know, I think at Turley we did a really good job of staying on point, which was we make Zinfandel. Yeah, we make collateral varieties too, things that we find out there, but in essence, it's a Zinfandel house. And so I've tried to do that with Fela. Fela makes Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. Yeah, we make a little bit of Syrah, but in general, that's what we do. Day makes Zinfandel. And yet I have this sort of need to do other things and explore. And so that's the next thing coming down the pike. We're dipping our toe in, thinking about it. I mean, I am. I say we because it's, I think of winemaking as sort of a team effort, and I've got a lot of really talented people that I work with. And I drink a lot of Chenin Blanc at home. I drink a lot of Riesling at home. I drink a lot of Trousseau at home. I drink a tremendous amount of Gamay at home, and I have this—I I don't know whether it's an American thing or what it is. It's like, I drink it, therefore I want to make it. And there have been some revelatory moments along the way. And I mean, the one that I have most recently stumbled upon, so we made Gamay in 16 from a vineyard in the Eola Amity Hills called Bjornson. So it, it adjoins Seven Springs to the south and west. And, you know, I'm my biggest critic. My post-action criticism was I picked it too late and I left it in the fermenter too long. Not a lot. You know, I probably picked it two or three days too late, and I probably left it in the fermenter a day too long. That was my general thought. The wine was big. You know, I drink a lot of cru Beaujolais, and it didn't remind me of that. It was something else. And so in 17, a little more uh, slow pace to the harvest. So I think we got our pick a little bit better. Um, we came out of the fermenter, I think, a little more appropriately. And I was tasting the wine, and I'm like, it's the same freaking thing, man. this It's a bruising wine. I mean, it's like really big and tannic. And my associate, Savannah Wright, was like, it reminds me more of like an Hervé Suo Gamay. It's like Gamay in the Rhone. It's not Gamay and Beaujolais. And I'm like, right, well, that's the site, I think. I don't think we could do a whole lot less than we did. <laughs> you know, when we... Press that off it was so pale and we squeeze it and i'm like watching the juice get darker and darker. and she's like whoa whoa holy smoke so i frequently preach to people that if you want to make cornos move to cornos you're not going to make cornos in the willamette valley and you're not going to make it on the sonoma coast you're going to make it in cornos and so on some level, there was like this little bit of disappointment, like, but I wanted to make Crue Beaujolais. <laughs> and I've, I kind of worked it through my mind, and I'm like, you know what? It's still really good. It's a fascinating expression of Gamay. And if I want to make Crue Beaujolais, you know the drill, dude. Get on the plane and fly to France. You can probably buy some vines in Beaujolais and maybe in a crew, and you could do that. So shut up. And... Make gamay in the Willamette Valley, which we're doing. And I'm super excited about it. And I want to plant gamay at my place because I have a very different soil than the Jory volcanic clay that exists in the southern part of the Eola Amity Hills at Bjornson. And it's not that Bjornson's, I mean, it's not bad at all. It's, I, I, I embrace it. It's really fascinating. There's other expressions out there. Um,
0: I begin to think it's site related. I am 100% with you, especially when you throw in volcanic soils into a mix, you can get those kinds. Of, but one thing that I think we've both seen is the like 10 years later and you find out that the vine was misidentified, right? right. Like You know. Yeah, 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 Oh, actually, it's... It's not Viognier. It's... <laughs> yeah. You know. I mean, we've sure. been down that road. And certainly,
1: I mean, Napa is the epicenter of that with Gamay because you've got Napa Gamay. Well, it's actually not Gamay. It has nothing to do with it. Here, this is Gamay. I mean, it's a funny thing. There are grape varieties that nobody talks about clone. I mean, everybody talks about clone. Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, it's all you ever talk about. Name the clones of Gamay available in the United States. Uh, Cricket, I mean, or Riesling. What selections of Riesling are available to plant in the Willamette Valley? So when you think about all of the energy that's been placed into certain grape varieties in a given region, Willamette Valley. And then there are other grape varieties that have exhibited really interesting possibility. I mean, certainly Gamay. And yet, you know, there's like one UC Davis clone and one Intov clone. And I go back to my travels with Bruce Nyers on the Kermit Lynch bandwagon. And when you get into the The kind of producers, I was going to say the serious producers, but I'm going to modify that and say the kind of producers whose wines I appreciate. When you start talking about clones, they're like, oh yeah, no, I would never plant a clone. I mean, August Klopp, like the worst mistake I ever made was the clone 99 we planted up here. It's 30 years old now. It still doesn't taste good. So, you know, that element of Massal selection, which we all kind of groove on in Chardonnay and Pinot Noir land well, how come we're not doing it in Gamay world? And what about Riesling land? And I think part of it is that people haven't devoted the energy because those were less economically viable grapes and wine. And now we're arriving at a point where people are geeking out on Beaujolais and they're hanging out over there with Yvonne Metros and Dutrev and, you know, the Gang of Four and... Walking in vineyards and saying, wow, that's a really old vineyard. I mean, that's not a clone. What is that? Well, that's, you know, the budwood came from over here and over there. And I got some sticks from this guy. And it's the element of Massal selection. And I think that advances complexity in wines. And so I think, and this isn't a Valley specific thing. This goes to California too. There's a lot of resources brought to bear on developing a vineyard. As land gets more expensive, you know a lot of times a lot of these massal selections are virused, and that 's part of the charm of them you know and it's, it's hard to explain that to someone that just spent a hundred and fifty or two hundred grand on a piece of dirt per acre, and now you're asking them to spend forty or fifty planting it, and yeah, we 're going to plant some virus stuff. I mean, it should be fine, and you know so there are themes that run through the wine business, and I feel like i've gotten to a point where I can run down that road and kind of experiment and plant weird grape varieties that maybe a lot of other people aren't growing. I I mean, I think there are people growing a lot of those grape varieties in Oregon already. And it goes back to that element of a broader audience, a broader acceptance of a wider array of styles, and sort of the, on some level, like the hipsterization of wine in the sense of 25 years ago, if you'd asked an average wine drinker or even a serious wine drinker to discourse about wines of the Jura, <laughs> shit, good luck. And um, I, I mean, I don't want to say hipster in a pejorative sense. I say it more in the sense of like obsessed with knowledge. Like, I want to get to the root of why I like that. And I want to know everything about Savignon and whether it's topped or untopped. And I mean, there's like this amount of knowledge out there that's really cool. And I tend to be more visceral when it comes to wines. And so I've been exposed to wines that probably I wouldn't have paid that much attention to 20 years ago. I mean, I've sold my almost entire cellar two or three times now where, you know, in the early nineties, I worked at Phelps. I ran the tasting room. I did a bunch of other stuff and all my friends worked in other tasting rooms, Camus you know, I traded with Randy Dunn and I developed this large cellar of Napa Cabernet. And by and large, I got to a point where I'm like, I don't really drink these wines. These aren't a couple in there, Randy's wines. I still gravitate towards them. But by and large, things had shifted for me from a textural and taste standpoint. I'm like, those wines no longer held a lot of appeal. And it happened again, sort of the bigger phase of non-Cabernet wines, the Rhone movement. I had access to a lot of wines that I bought and one day was like I'm just not I'm not drinking them and I think I'm not drinking them cuz I'm not finding the kind of pleasure that I used to find in wines like this and not all of them but a lot of them and you know I got other uses for this space I'm going to sell it and go do something else so I've noticed that about myself and so you know if you'd said to me 15 20 years ago you're going to buy a piece of property in Oregon and grow sauvignon I've been like, yeah, right. Put the pipe down, step away from the baggie. And I find myself in this spot and I'm not abandoning the other things. I'm just really intrigued by what I have experienced in Oregon in terms of the flavor profile and acid profile of non Pinot Noir varieties. And I love the Pinot Noir too. I mean, I'm making a fair amount of Oregon Pinot Noir. I'm not disparaging it. I'm just saying I think there's potential for a lot of other stuff to do really well here. Uh, Potential's the wrong word because there are people doing other things that are really quite good at it.
0: So at the same time that you see some room for some growth and some more obscure grape varieties, I feel like you also see that Oregon has a potential for Chardonnay that maybe hasn't fully been realized. Oh, yeah.
1: I think the Pinot Noir... I don't want to say that there's no leaves that are unturned in Pinot Noir. There's just been some very talented people making Pinot Noir for a relatively long time. I mean, there are people with 35 vintages under their belt that can discourse on the terroirs of specific vineyards and have 20 to 25 years experience working with the grapes. It's you're not going to stride in and just say, Hey, I've found this new spot. You know, it's it's pretty well defined you know i think with chardonnay there is that element the economic element that nobody grew chardonnay because it gets ripe later and it's oregon it's maybe you're going to have a an early end to harvest so people skewed toward pinot but now you're in this mode of i think farming is so good that you can grow chardonnay and people are starting to say whoa that chardonnay is unbelievable so this goes back to the economics of it i make a willamette valley Pinot Noir, and someone said, "Are you going to do a Willamette Valley Chardonnay?" And I said, "Probably not, because the grapes are too expensive, and everyone expects sort of in-line pricing. Your Pinot Noir is X, so your Chardonnay is going to be X minus five percent." I'm like, "No, it doesn't work that way here. Your Chardonnay is going to be X times one hundred and twenty percent, and that's a little bit upsetting to the psychic norm of selling wine. So I'll just stick with single vineyard wines and a Willamette Valley Pinot, but in the Chardonnay world." I don't know that I'm there. I just think the potential is so underexplored. There are people making super exciting Chardonnays here, and it should be a a wake-up call to everybody in the business.
0: There are really serious wines coming out of Oregon on a Chardonnay level. One way that Oregon seems different to me than California is that there isn't that jug wine, bulk wine, undercurrent to Oregon that has long been a part of California. Yep. The sort of jug bulk wine scene,
1: I mean, it's hard to compete with California, with the Central Valley, just because it's warm and it's very favorable grape growing conditions. So I don't know that that's Oregon's place in the wine business. So it it definitely, by not occupying that sphere, on the one hand, it's harder to be recognized on a, a mass level. But on the other hand, you're occupying sort of the upper tiers of the wine business. If you look at bottle prices, I think there's more over hundred dollar Pinot Noirs in Oregon than there are in California. I'm not positive of that. I just, it strikes me as the good wines here are expensive. You know, it's frustrating to me that the best Pinot Noir in California, you know, you struggle to sell a bottle for $85 and yet you could make average Cabernet in the Napa Valley and sell for $125 a bottle. I mean, that's frustrating, really frustrating. And here, Pinot Noir is the apex variety. And so it commands the apex prices. And I find that fascinating. And, you know, I think of late, you're starting to see more and more broad market wineries, brands, if you will, that are not merely available at a, let's say, fine dining or bricks-and-mortar high-end retail shop but are available in a grocery store and cap-stacked at the Safeway.
0: People were making big plays here in the 80s in terms of investment, but it seems to me that those kind of investments have really speeded up recently, say in the last five years. I I regularly read articles about like big purchase of a vineyard. Big winery X buys X, big buys
1: Y. Yeah, I mean, so the quick drill down on that, I mean – It's pretty straightforward, which is as the price of Pinot Noir has gotten higher and higher and higher in California, collectively, specifically Sonoma County, and you have brands that are, you know, relatively value proposition Pinot Noir brands, you can't make the wine and make money anymore because the price of grapes has gone through the roof in California. And so you look north and you're like, wow, we can buy a lot of acres in the Willamette Valley for not a lot of money and now we own it. And we can guarantee ourselves a fruit source that will supply this price point wine. And it's not necessarily the high end, but it's not poorly made wine either. And that's the fascinating thing for me about the dynamic of what's going on now. And without getting into naming names, there are a couple people that have invested heavily, like thousands of acres and serious acres. And. If you know the brands in question, the brand is morphing from a Sonoma County-driven brand to a Willamette Valley brand, and I think that that can occur when you get to a point where someone says, "You're in a restaurant and you got brand X on the wine list, and oh, I want the the blah blah blah." Well, did you want the Russian River Valley, the Sonoma Coast, or the Lamp? I don't know. I just want the blah, blah. It's brand Trump's appellation. And once you've achieved that spot, that's where you see people, larger companies going, I'm going to Oregon. Because it's really hard to hold a price point in California. I mean, the reason that I say that so articulately and rapidly is it's hard for me. I mean, I make Sonoma Coast Pinot Noir. It's hard to. Keep my price point. And I feel like if I keep raising my price, I better make less wine because it's you just get out of your. I mean, you've worked in the restaurant business. The deal is wines are marked up a certain amount and your high end glass pour is finite. I mean, yes, there are restaurants that have $70 glasses of wine. They're very, 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 very few and far between. You know, a $20 glass pour. Is a high-end glass pour, and in order to be that wine, you have to be at a certain price point. And you know, if you're a business, which I still am, it's how I earn my living. You have to be conscious of what it costs to get that wine into the bottle. And I look out twenty years into the future and say, I can't. I can't envision making that wine in California twenty years from now. I won't be able to afford to, and I will be able to do it in Oregon.
0: I know it's just started to happen for you because you made a few vintages, but you've just started to kind of release the Willamette Valley wines. But what's the customer reaction? Are they saying like, oh, cool, you're doing Willamette Valley now? Are they saying like, oh, this is different than the Fela I know from the Sonoma Coast? Are they saying, let me compare the two? I mean, what are they saying?
1: Great question. And I'm still trying to divine the answer to that. We made the 15s in california 15 singular we made one wine Trucked the fruit down and it became apparent relatively rapidly that if we were going to make any more than one trucking was not an option so we became a client of the carlton winemaker studio that was 16 and 17 and then we got to a point i mean it was a, a couple of pronged issues i mean one we got too big for the studio And you get too big, and now you're like the 800-pound gorilla in the corner just pissing people off, and I don't like doing that. So, But the second factor was that I figure if I've got people coming to my winery in California, I can sell them a small amount of Oregon wine, but there's a point at which they're going to say, hello, I'm in California. I'm not in Oregon. Can you pour me a California wine? Which I completely respect, much like my tasting room in the Willamette Valley. I can— say to someone, hey, if you want to try one of the California wines, we can. But if the entire lineup was California, people would be like, uh, uh, are we not in Oregon right now? You do see all these vineyards, right? So my thing was, it's important to have a stage, I think, in both places to showcase what you're doing. So to loop back around to the question, what's the response? So the 15, one wine, gone. 16s, First vintage of a lot of the wines for us. So in 15, we made seven springs and that was it. I mean, if you're going to start with one vineyard, pretty good one to start with. Uh, Somebody figured out a long time ago, this is a good place to grow grapes. And they've been doing it for a long time really well. But we added three additional sites to the mix and we made a Willamette Valley Pinot. And so we released those wines in the spring and they're gone. So I take that as a good sign. We didn't make a lot of wine, but the reception so far has been really positive, which is, I mean, I I wasn't totally sure what to expect. I had a pretty good supposition that even if there was resistance, that I could get over that. And, you know, again, it's one of those, like when I make California wine and I knock on my distributor in Oregon's door, they're like, dude, Coles to Newcastle, beat it a little bit of Chardonnay. like, we're not buying any Pinot Noir. So when I go to my California distributor and say, hey, guess what? I've got this new project in Oregon. They're like, yeah, you do know where you are, right? I mean, we sell a little bit of Oregon Pinot Noir. We're just not going to sell that much. And so there's a learning curve for sure. There are markets where I can sell more and less, and that will all come into a, a state of equilibrium over time. I mean, we're not making that much wine up here. I think we crushed somewhere around 5 thousand cases last year and should be on target to do that again this year so for some people that's really big and for some people that's you know not really big for me i i had that volume in mind that's kind of the that justifies your own facility volume for me when i look at what i'm paying in custom crush costs versus where i can lease a winery for that's the tipping point so i kind of was racing to get to that size it's about
0: a fourth of your production these days, is yeah. that correct? Yeah, about that. And where do you see it going? You have the vineyard in the Van Duser Corridor area, and then you're working with Zenith, and yep. you're purchasing yeah. some other fruit.
1: I think, I'm, I'm never positive. I was chatting with a guy that I know, this is probably 2010. We'd started Phala in 98, and he said, you know, how much wine do you make? And I said, oh, you yeah, know, 5,000 cases. And he said, well, what's your plan? And I'm like, I don't know. I don't have a plan. Are you kidding me? Like if you'd asked me 10 years ago what my plan was. So in 2000, when we just started selling wine and we had one bien and one Syrah and we made 200 cases of wine, my plan was to make 200 cases of wine and just kind of go with the flow. And now all of a sudden I make 20,000 cases of wine. And At that point, I was making five thousand, and if you'd said you're going to hit twenty, I'd have, I doubt it. So, I think, and this is my now, however many vintages, thirty some vintages speaking, I think that Fela is a pretty mature brand in the way that I envision it. Now, I mean, if somebody else was running the show, they might have a different vision. The way that I make wine and the way that I sell wine, I don't think Fela gets a whole lot bigger. I know what I would have to do in order to get bigger and how the wines would have to be sold. And I don't want to do that at this juncture of my wine career. So I think we're pretty good the way we are. Um, Day is another story. It's relatively small at 4,000 cases having ridden the Turley roller coaster for 20 years, I have no idea what to expect. I actually think that a Zinfandel brand can very easily be bigger than a Pinot Noir brand and still comport to my desires of winemaking and selling. And that has to do with price. It has to do with price. There's too many people that make good, inexpensive wine. I I can't compete with them. They're too big. They're too well-funded. They're too many good vineyards, you know, in the world of Zinfandel, I mean, it's it's a funny distinction between customers. So in the world of Pinot Noir, you make a series of relatively expensive single vineyard wines and you make, let's say a Sonoma Coast wine and people buy, you know, I'll buy three or four or six of the single vineyard wines and they're good. You want the Sonoma Coast as your drinking wine at home, weekends, barbecue? Nope, not interested. In the world of Zinfandel, you can make a portfolio of single vineyard old vine things and an old vines or juvenile, if I'm speaking Turley lingo. And the people that are buying three, four, six bottles of each of your single vineyard wines are buying 10 cases of juvenile because they want to drink it at home. It's a really fascinating thing. So I think Day could end up being a bigger brand. A bigger production winery and then I have another I mean have this other thing kind of lurking in my psyche which is the kind of more geeky wines and I'm real clear on those which is that that can't be very big because there's just not a big market for it and kind of the way I envision making a lot of those wines are more time consuming and they're more esoteric I, I don't see
0: Having a 10,000 case Gamay wine. But it seems like what that offers you is a chance to get back to your roots a little bit on the Kermit Lynch tours, oh, these yeah. kind of more unusual Grapefries, but it also allows you a calling card to a different generation of buyers. Oh, totally. So the thing is, it's authentic because I actually drink those wines. And yet
1: there are people, I mean, I don't think that I'm that old. At the present time, I'm 51. I have been doing this for a while, and I've heard, you know, w- when nobody knows who I am sitting at a bar, two wine people talking about, well, you know, they have been around for a long time. They're coasting. What, I mean, whatever the terminology is, you're some old dude making wine. And they want the young and the hip and the now. And I'm like, I feel as young as I do the day that I started this whole exercise, which is awesome the wine industry for some is not necessarily the fountain of youth, but I think if you're really passionate about what you do, it can be. And I've never lost that curiosity. I mean, I have friends that just kind of zone in on one thing and that's what they make and that's what they drink. And I'm like, Ooh, that doesn't sound appealing in any way, shape or form. I mean, I'm drinking wines now that i never heard of 25 years ago and I'm excited about them. I don't want to ever lose that. And so, yeah, that next thing for me is It keeps the creative energy at a high level, and I think it spills over into the other wines. I think when you've been doing something for a really long time, there is that element of, well, I'm making Chardonnay and Pinot Noir, and I mean, how much variation on the theme can you have and still stay within what you're trying to do? And the answer is, I mean, you're continuing to refine. I think there can be much more blunt moves earlier on in a project. And then later on, it's much more fine-tuning and tinkering and sculpting. And the analogy that I use frequently is, it's like an Indy car race. We've all got kind of the same car. The difference between the winner and the loser isn't some radical innovation. It's really very subtle movements. It's not big movements. And I... I'm reminded of a conversation I had with the general manager of the studio, the Carlton Winemaker Studio, a guy named Anthony King, who I've known for a really long time. And he is the reason I went to the studio. And after the first vintage we were there, he kind of took me aside. We were BSing in the cellar one day and he said, you know, I mean, you and I know each other. We've known each other for a long time, but we've never worked in the same space. And I got to tell you, you don't do much. And I said, nope. You will be shocked at how quickly I react to certain things, but most of it, I don't move much. I try to plan it out. I try to associate, you know, back to the mantra of great wines come from great vineyards farmed really well with winemakers that don't do much, that like get out of way. Know your craft, understand it. But I feel like when you start with really good raw ingredients, you just don't need to work that hard.
0: So despite what you said about kind of going with the flow as a business guy, I see you as super astute in the wine business side of things. You're not a sellout. You make the wines you want to make, but you've made some really smart choices in terms of your business from an outsider view, from my perspective. Thank you. And so is there an aspect of this Oregon thing that we haven't talked about that I'm missing? Is there something that you see that you're like, this is the thing. This is a piece of this that we haven't talked about financially. I mean. We've touched on it.
1: Oregon occupies a strange, it's kind of an unusual place, which is there's that super high end. I mean, the high end of Oregon is higher than the high end of California. And the intrigue for me is that. And I mean, high end, not necessarily price point, but I think there are some truly Grand Cru sites that I'm really interested to work with fruit from them to see how they fit into this mix of other sites that I have. And I think they're different and yet they're equal, if not better. So that side is intriguing. And that's sort of the, the smaller boutique you know, the high end is tiny, it's like a pyramid. The top of the pyramid is small and. I think the wine industry will always be that way. My thing in Oregon is you can find really good sites farmed with stunning thoughtfulness for very little money, both buying land and buying grapes. And I appreciate your take on my business perspective. I'm a student of the business because it is my business and I watch a lot of other people who I think of as being way smarter than I am. And so when we talk about some of these larger entities, these are not stupid people. These are very thoughtful people. In fact, they're thinking about things that I'm probably not even thinking of and I'm watching what goes on and I filter that through the lens of my own production. So. Oregon wines are different than California wines, but they're not inferior. They're just different. And I think in the world of high-end Pinot Noir, having all those different spots on the spectrum is super important. And, you know, I've lived through Napa exploding to a point where it's not affordable for normal human beings. Sonoma is rushing down that path. And I see Oregon as the next frontier. Uh, I don't plan on leaving California. I mean, I always say I'm not from California. I'm from Pennsylvania. (laughs) I live in California, but I lived in Colorado before I lived in California. And I lived in Massachusetts for a while too. And so I'm not a homer either way. And Oregon to me is, it's hard to describe the pull. I think it feels like Europe. It feels European. It has that aesthetic. You know, we rush towards monoculture. Napa to me is pretty monocultured out. Sonoma's still got the dairy industry, a staggering apple industry, but it's not far away. Because I mean, where you can grow apples, you can grow grapes and you can make a lot more money on grapes. So that's a matter of time. I you mean know, the cheese-slash-milk production, that actually occupies a space that I don't think is very viable for grapes, so that may continue. But, I mean, it's still—there's a boatload of vineyard. And I come up here, there's just a feel about it. I mean, just today, as a—for instance, it's 73 degrees, it's super humid, it does not feel like California in any way, shape, or form. It feels like you're on the East Coast, it feels like you're in France. And there's a draw that I can't quite put my finger on. and. I will tell you there's another appeal for me, and I sensed it in Paso Robles 20 years ago, which is that there's an energy that surrounds a place where average human beings in the wine business can have their own winery. And that's been pretty well snuffed out in the Napa Valley. The bar of entry is so high that it doesn't really exist. And it's, again, Sonoma County is not there, but it's getting there. And I remember going down to Paso for Turley in 2000, you know, you could buy land for 25,000 bucks an acre that was planted and you could buy unplanted land for 8,000 an acre. And that was within the reach of the people that I like to hang out with. (laughs) And so there's like this energetic space that's occupied when you have that many people all working towards making great wine. And Napa's sort of been refined down to this essence of it's a great place to grow Cabernet, which I'm not a huge Cabernet drinker, so I don't know. It might not be the right place ultimately for me. i I find more vineyards that I like in Sonoma County. I mean, there used to be a lot of more vineyards that I liked in Napa County, but the, you know, when a property sells for six hundred thousand bucks an acre. The incoming owner is not going to keep the old Zinfandel vineyard. They're going to tear it out and they're going to plant Cabernet because it is, after all, I mean, it's a business. And it saddens me on the one hand, but I don't have the money to buy that. If I did, I would. I don't, so I won't. And I think I'm drawn to the promise of a more inclusive wine area. And I think that is the essence of Oregon.
0: Aaron Jordan is drawn to the top of pyramids that are still within reach. Thank you very much for being here today. You're welcome. Aaron Jordan of Fela and also Day, who's now making wine in Oregon. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Skella has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tanoian. This episode was made possible by the Willamette Valley Wineries Association. That's the same association that organizes the annual Willamette, the Pinot Noir Auction, Oregon Pinot Camp, and Pinot in the City. For more information, please visit willamettewines.com. That's Willamette with two L's, two E's, and two T's, wines.com.
1: Global warming on this, in the sense of, and I, I was chatting with someone about this, literally yesterday or the day before, it's not always what you think it is. It's not necessarily hotter. So I would say Russian River Valley is a classic example. When you have inland areas heating, hot air rises and it pulls more fog in off the ocean. So Sonoma County's had two of the coldest vintages in the last 50 years in the last 10. We are getting, I say, more climate variation. where really hot spikes and then crazy rain events. And if you farm and pay attention, it's pretty extraordinary times right now.